Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Samantha Manowitz is on our show today. She's an educator, soon-to-be PhD student, and an AASECT certified sex therapist. She has given trainings on abuse prevention and sex-positive communities to mental health professionals, psychiatric residents, sex educators, and alt-sex communities. She's also on the faculty of the Institute for Sexuality Education and Enlightenment, and is an expert on trauma and sex therapy. Samantha has been quoted in articles in Slate, Vice News, and NBC, and she's presented at professional conferences across the country. And she let me know that in September 2019, she'll be closing her private practice to pursue a social work PhD program at the University of Toronto School of Social Work with a graduate specialization in sexual diversity studies. Here's Samantha now. Well, I want to welcome Samantha Manowitz today to the indoctrination show. Um, She is somebody who has an interesting story to tell, and it is a story uh, not only about something that happened to her and happens within a particular community and also can happen in any community, which is the important part, because it's about the nature of the relationship between people, but also how to get past the experience and, and how to safeguard yourself and how to heal from it. And so I, there are a lot of places this conversation can go. So uh, Samantha, go ahead and introduce yourself to let people know what you do and who you are. All right. Hello uh, again. My name is Samantha Manowitz. I am currently a licensed independent clinical social worker working out of the state of Massachusetts. I am also an ASECT certified sex therapist. Although in September, I'm going to be moving to Toronto to start a social work PhD program at uh, University of Toronto School of Social Work with a specialization in sexual diversity studies. Among my specialties are working with complex trauma, folks with PTSD, folks who have been what I would identify as one-on-one cults and how to heal from that. But I also work with folks who identify Um, with various sexual minorities, so not just the LGBTQ rainbow alphabet suit, but folks who identify with um, BDSM and kink communities and also polyamory and consensual non-monogamy. And I am very excited and a little nervous to be here because I've been such a huge fan almost since you started. Very nice of you to say. Uh, But part of why I am here is that I'm part of a transformative justice process around somebody who has caused harm, particularly in the polyamory community. And we're currently taking a kind of community approach, even though it's a global community, to helping the people who were harmed by this person, uh, Franklin Vo, find healing. Mm, Okay. Okay. So I'm curious just about some of the terms that you used. uh, Because, yeah, in my field and in yours there's some uh, some of the lexicon that overlaps some does and some doesn't yeah right yeah and so the one-on-one cult yeah I got you and I think also the idea of harm reduction although I'd love you to talk more about that I guess to start can you describe what you mean by harm reduction what are what are the steps to that as you see them so I'd like to 
actually talk about transformative justice first and then how harm reduction kind of fits into that framework. So, so I'm, I'm kind of borrowing this from uh, a friend and colleague of mine, Andy Eisenstein, who does a lot of activism around uh, transformative and restorative justice. So in our culture, particularly U.S. culture, when we think about justice, we think about a kind of a, a punitive model. So if somebody does something bad, we say, you have done this bad thing. And then if things go well, though they don't always, they get put in a box for X amount of time. And for the time that they're in the box, they can't cause harm to the people who they had harmed, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is fine while they're in the box, but it doesn't actually do anything to change their behavior, to mm -hmm. prevent other people from doing that harmful thing right. for healing, etc. So restorative justice, um, you can see this in a lot of Mennonite, a lot of Quaker circles. I know that uh, in Canada, there's a strong transformative justice, a restorative justice push. It's called restorative because we are restoring the heart, you know, the, the person who has been harmed to kind of a whole state. Mm -hmm. Now, transformative justice looks at restorative justice and is like, okay, that's all good and fine. But if the status quo had, you know, some issues or systemic problems that led to that thing occurring, it's not just a let's deal with this person, let's take a look at these structures and see what we can transform, not only to give healing to the people who were hurt, but also to change the environment that allowed these harms to occur in the first place. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it does. It, yes, and again, you know, just in terms of overlapping, yes, there are some things that overlap, but there are also some really important distinctions. I'm wondering also just about how how you've seen the term justice as part of these terms to be healing in and of itself, because there is such an important piece of healing and being able to feel powerful, being able to know that there somewhere out there there can be kind of this system of checks and balances and you can get some of your power back um all of it that that eludes many people who just have to kind of heal on their own without ever really being able to do anything about it uh in a big way or in a systemic way to change things yeah and there are a lot of people who quite frankly are just a system fails for a myriad reasons. I mean, I think about uh, the Leah Remini's Scientology and the Aftermath show and mm -hmm. all of the institutional betrayals that so many of the guests and so many of the people they interviewed and former Scientologists have dealt with and how sometimes going through the legal system isn't necessarily the way to get the type of justice that you want and it doesn't necessarily always fix those systemic issues um actually in a way and i think i had had mentioned this to you in an email i think about the leah remini show and the aftermath foundation as in the spirit of transformative justice because if you think about the goals of of leah remini's show 
like the end game isn't necessarily to punish David Miscavige, even though David Miscavige is not a very good person who has done a lot of really terrible and harmful things. The focus of her show isn't on that. It is on giving survivors and people who've been harmed a voice and a platform and safety in numbers so they can feel held and believed. But she's also attacking those systemic things that have allowed Scientology to get away with all of the harms that it has by petitioning the IRS, by setting up the Scientology Foundation, by um, creating locuses of support. We're doing a lot of the same things, but on a much smaller scale and without the support of a network and a budget. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. I think also something that gets highlighted when you uh, hear about the harassment that she has to deal with, the harassment that I've dealt with, with this same group. I can't even begin to imagine. Yeah. I mean, it it can, it can feel very scary. And uh, especially if your intention was just to help to give a voice to the voiceless or empower the people who who felt that their power was taken away or to heal people who were needing to be healed. You haven't, you haven't done anything wrong, but meanwhile, you're getting followed, you know, uh, to your home. So, uh, or complaints made against you. I mean, it really is, it's hard to be up against that, but it, it also becomes, I think, symbolic of what happens to people when they want to be able to do something about what's happened to them. They hear some of these stories of harassment in it and it, can make them feel too afraid to pursue the kind of justice that they need, just also being able to speak out about their experiences. And it's really a shame that people feel too scared to do that. I think that's why it seems really important that you've developed a means by which people can do it or a group that that helps support that effort because it's very hard to do it on your own. There is, um, I think it's the... Bay Area Transformative Justice Alliance, I can send you a link just to put in client notes as a, as a resource. They have a really great kind of infographic and, and blurb on not only what transformative justice is, but what a quote-unquote transformative justice pod is. So the, the goal of it is to provide kind of extra support and to bring people in. So, so a, a, a pod is, if I have been harmed, who are the people who I can reach out to for support? But also on the flip side of that is, if I have been accused of harm, or if I have caused harm, who are the people who I could call on to hold myself accountable? Who are the people who I trust to not just call me out on my bad behavior, but also hold me in a place of compassion. And sometimes when we've been deeply hurt and deeply abused, it can be very easy to turn the people who have harmed us into kind of two-dimensional cardboard cutouts. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we don't have anybody or any structure 
helping them change their behavior or even seeing if a, a change in behavior is possible. Because in many cases, especially in a case of like a David Miscavige or a Keith Raniere, change may not be possible, but you do need to do some work to figure out if that is in fact the case. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It does. So to come back to this idea where you were talking about not only providing an opportunity for the people who feel that they have been harmed to have a chance to heal and connect, but also the people who were involved in behaviors that caused a negative mm-hmm. impact on other people, that they also have an opportunity to connect, to heal, to learn in those ways. I think it's very, very important. I mean, that you know, you hear every once in a while about support groups for people who are perpetrators of a variety of, of different things. And it's a great idea because there's some people who do it because they just don't know that there's another way to treat people or they're, you know, working out some other issues, uh, early issues for them. And they just need to learn about how to heal from those and understand those and the impact that they're having on other people. And yes, there are some people who are not interested in, in changing their behavior. And that, that is, uh, those are disappointing moments when you see that that's true. And it could also be that they're not interested yet, right? They're just not ready to kind of give up that power, whatever that, whatever form that power comes in for them. But what have you noticed about those kinds of, uh, groups or opportunities for people who have caused the harm? What do you think helps them open their eyes or grow? I mean, I think it depends. And I've seen it happen in in different ways and with different people. And I think it, it also depends on... Uh, so one of the, the trainings that I have is in Gottman Method Couples Therapy. And the Gottmans, uh, John Gottman and his research partner I forget his name. I'll have to look it up. But uh, did a, a study in 1997, I think, on men who batter women. And he talked about two types of uh, perpetrators of domestic violence, um, situational versus characterological. So situational is there some sort of external situation that is causing the bad behavior. I see this when uh, war vets come back and they're in a relationship and have untreated PTSD. And so they act out really violently because their kind of internal equilibrium is out of whack. Or um, folks who have grown up in a, a really toxic environment or a toxic religious group or an organization and kind of you taking them out and sort of helping them figure it out and heal. And once they are removed from the environment and done the work, the, the, the abusive patterns go away. Characterological, is, those are your Harvey Weinsteins. Those are your um, Bill Cosby's, your David Miscavige's. Actually, here's a really good, you know, David Miscavige is characterological. Um, that violence gets committed and, you know, it is kind of endemic to the way that he runs and conducts Scientology. Mike Rinder was situational. He did a lot of really awful and abusive things when he was in the organization, but you took him out of Scientology, kind of, you know, and he's going through his own process, and then that abusive behavior stopped. 
Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, you know, it's an interesting situation with Mike Rinder uh, because I've known him for a very long time. We're not friends, but uh, he he was there harassing people at conferences that I was speaking at and people who were who were just freshly out of a group or were thinking about leaving and he was in their face and Mm-hmm. and, and uh, quite intimidating and not just him, but he, you know, would bring a crew of people. Yeah. And then once he got out, I remember him, we had a, a conversation, a Skype conversation uh, as he was starting his show with Leah um, just to go over some ideas and seeing his face on my computer screen, <laughs> I did actually, I, I kind of jumped back a bit because there was this kind of knee-jerk reaction to seeing him because of how he had been um, so scary before, but, but it's not who he is. And it, in those situations, yes, it's something that can be intoxicating because you have that power, but also you know that that's your job and that also people are going to be berating you for not doing it well enough, you know, for not being scary enough. Exactly. And so, you know, you're kind of backed into a corner of being someone who who is really rep- a reprehensible person, but just on the surface, you know, and when it stops yeah. aligning with who you are and with your conscience, yeah. you know, I think that those are the times that people decide that they have to get out because this isn't who they really are supposed to be. Yeah. I think also just another uh, word definition for the, the listeners when you describe a pod, so, you know, that is something that people might not be familiar with. So go ahead and sort of define what that is and how it forms. All right. So I'm actually going to be reading from the Boston area, or sorry, the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collection, because they have a great thing on what is a pod. So here's what they have to say. Your pod is made up of people that you would call on if violence, harm, or abuse happened to you or the people that would you would call on if you wanted support in taking accountability for violence, harm, or abuse that you've done, or if you've witnessed violence by someone being abused. Most people have few solid, dependable relationships in their lives, and many people have less people they could call on to take a- accountability for harm they've done than harm that have, that's happened to them. So. The reason why the the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, uh, the reason why they called it a pod is initially transformative justice was uh, couched in community support. But then that raised the question, what is a community? How do we define community, especially when a lot of these worlds exist in online spaces? And so... A pod is an intentional gathering of support systems. Mm. And, and so that is part of what goes into that work. Oh, okay. Another thing that we did is we reached out to other people who may have been harmed by Franklin. So when we first kind of went public, we started with six women. And uh, we have uh, somebody who's kind of pod adjacent, Louisa Leotinidis who is gathering the stories of survivors and she sent out kind of a call of, hey, if you've experienced harm with Franklin and you want to be part of this process or you want your story to be told, please come forward and let us know. Mm -hmm. And part of this, the reason why we did this is in the spirit of transformative justice is that 
if you don't have your own supports, if you feel like you're alone, you can kind of tag on to our process and utilize the supports that are already in place instead of having to reinvent the wheel. Mm, okay. Okay. You know, the, this is great. And I like the term pod adjacent also. Um, the, the idea of an intentional gathering of support systems or a community, I think people don't realize how vital that is. And until they have it, and until they have really a group of people uh, they can trust and with whom they can feel safe and supported, a lot of people feel that they're kind of just spinning out in the world on their own and suffering alone. And there is kind of a detachment that we experience uh, that is that really delays healing and you can't lean on each other. And, you know, there used to be the idea of, you know, being in a village, being in a community, you knew everyone on your street, uh, right? You could have your na- your neighbors to watch your kids or whatever else. That just you know, it's very rare that that happens these days. And a lot of people also have these virtual friendships online. And, and it's nice to have that. But it's also nice to have sort of the hug when you need it, you know, not just a virtual hug. So having a little bit of both is is a really good thing. It's it's actually really, really necessary. I'm, I'm remembering the whole, you know, the phrase, it takes a village. Yeah. Not everyone has a village and sometimes they have to create it for themselves. And just knowing where to find these people, it sounds like that's something that you're helping to provide. So how to, how to connect people to each other. Exactly. And I mean, we're, we're doing this with a, a very specific case study and people who've been harmed by a specific person. But it's not just about this person and not just about this process. Uh, there is a really wonderful educator and activist, Ida Mandalay, who we have uh, consulted with as our subject matter expert on transformative justice. And um, at a recent event in Arizona called Southwest Love Fest, which centers on uh, consensual non-monogamy, uh, they and I and one of our other pod members did a, a Q&A and one of the things that they said during that Q&A is, this isn't just about us. This isn't just about Franklin. This is an investment in all of our safety. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is an investment in community. And this is an investment in creating healthy community environments, mm-hmm. which is why we feel so strongly about this work and about doing this work. Right. Um, but also going back to support systems, I think about how in abusive dynamics and in high control groups of all shapes and sizes, one of the primary tools of control is siloing of information and isolation and isolating from information. And the higher you get or the closer you get, the more quarantined and cut off you are. And also the ways that even large high control groups where there is a a superficial sense of community, you have people in different echelons and certain info is shared with something else. And so that culture of secrecy keeps people trapped in in their own brains. So if you're coming out of this dynamic and you're, you've been gaslit for years, months, decades, however long, of 
course you don't have community. You may not even know that there are other people out there. So by, by making some of these stories public, I think that's why the Me Too movement is so important and so pressing is, is that solidarity, the, the safety and knowing that you're not alone. Right. And I think also when you're talking about the isolation, um, that there are a lot of people also in environments where they are um, being controlled and manipulated by somebody. They're often vying for that person's attention or to be the favorite because that person has set it up that way. Absolutely. And so then you can't trust the other people because they're going to betray you in order to win points with the person who, again, has set up that system, mm -hmm. uh, that that's how you get to be sort of the chosen or favorite one. Is that something that, that you saw within kind of the unhealthy form of that community? Oh, absolutely. And I think when we're talking about, especially like the polyamory and the BDSM communities, there are some extra layers of complexity there. Mm. So you know, I, I think about your the Q&A that you recently did in terms of, I, I think one of the questions you answered was what, what predisposes people to a cult or to a high control group. It's intellectual curiosity. It's wanting something bigger than yourself. It's feeling lost. It's, feel, you know, and, and so finding something like a consensual non-monogamy, which is kind of outside of the mainstream and a little bit taboo can also be, you, you sort of feel special. There is kind of a, there's a thing that I know that the general public might not. I've seen people in the sex positive community kind of snarkily refer to people outside those spaces as muggles. You know, there, there is kind of a, a yeah a specialness to that but there's also a lot of societal stigma when most people hear about non-monogamous dynamics what do they think of like I, I i gave a talk at a community health center many moons ago well not that many um after i had come back from a, a convention on uh uh sexual minorities and i'd hear things like oh polyamory that's like what mormons do right or they'll think of, you know, Nexium or Children of God, and they will make the connection that non-monogamy equals unhealthy. And that's just simply not the case, which means that when abuse does happen in our community, it creates what I've learned to call the double closet effect in that you saw this with the LGBTQ communities uh, on the ramp up to marriage equality, that when a story of abuse would come out in those communities, there was pressure from within to push those stories under the rug because we don't want to give our detractors any ammunition. Sort of, we need to look respectable. I think about... Um, there's this wonderful acapella group called the Kinsey Six that bills themselves as America's favorite dragapella beauty shop quartet. <laughs> and they're very irreverent and uh -huh. very political. And one of their founding members, Ben Schatz, who just uh, retired, in their most recent uh, show, Things You Shouldn't Say, 
he talked about his experience being a gay man and one of the first lawyers to work on HIV rights cases during the height of, of the epidemic. Mm. And he said that, you know, he would have to go in, you know, he performed his first role. He would go and put on his quote unquote lawyer drag. And he had to play the role of a nice young man that you didn't want to see die. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, you know, he said that my job is to explain and destigmatize, but his goal was to look like the respectable and pleasing homosexual. And he said, it's, you know, it's interesting how being respectable has become less appealing to me since. And, and there is this feeling like you have to put on that respectable face if you want to survive. Right. And there, there are people who don't fit into those normative boxes whose lives still matter. And, and so when abuse happens, kind of going back to somebody who doesn't fit into that respectable frame, mm-hmm. their voice may not be heard. Mm. That's such a good point. Yes, there are so many people who are discounted uh, and kind of eliminated right away uh, through no fault of their own, through appearance, dress, whatever it is, uh, where, yeah, I mean, even thinking about uh, the study that was done with people in the courtroom that um, people who were more attractive were found innocent more often. Uh, and so there is this sort of human element, this reactionary element that is uh, not at all about justice. It's really about um, kind of playing favorites based on how you think people should act. And then that that if they're sort of dressed the right way, then you have compassion for them, whatever the right way is. And it's truly it's truly unfair. It shouldn't be about that at all. That's a very powerful statement that he put on his lawyer drag to look like someone who you wouldn't want to have died. Yeah, wow. Wow. That's very powerful. Yeah. And, and also there are intersections of privilege and oppression. I think in the, the polyamory community, the people who have driven the more quote, like respectable narratives have been cis, heterosexual, white, and economically privileged and that doesn't actually capture the reality of everybody who fits into non-monogamy. Right. Um, it's only in the last couple of years, there's this guy, Kevin Patterson, who wrote uh, the first book about POC folks, who are, people of color who are non-monogamous. And their voices may even be deprioritized, even within a marginalized community. So, so there are lots of privileged blind spots when you're privileged in certain ways, but disadvantaged in others. And, and those intersections can be very messy and very complicated. Right, right. The, the kind of unspoken hierarchy. Absolutely. Okay. So I know you were talking about, you know, being able to support other women. Have there also been men who have come forward? Not to my knowledge, there may or may not be some folks who identify as non-binary who have come forward, Mm -hmm. Uh, but these are people who have been in intimate relationships with Franklin, and as far as I am, I am unaware of any male partners that he has. So if, if he does have them, I just haven't heard of it, so which is 
And because we're focusing specifically on this case, that's who we're focusing on. But that is not to say that men who have been harmed cannot kind of invite a similar process or to, to find justice using similar mechanisms. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's, it's really good to know for, for men to know, because sometimes they're, they're more hesitant about coming forward and sharing their story and, and how that's going to reflect on them somehow and being able to get that support. And even though in this case, you know, this is a, a kind of common binary that we see where it's a cis man who has caused harm and women who have been harmed, partner violence and intimate partner violence and getting involved in one-on-one cults or family groups or, you know, high control dynamics and relationships, these don't fall neatly across gender lines. I mean, I think about what was that, like Jay-Z Knight, uh, Ma Nan Sheila, mm-hmm. Teal Swan, you know. Yeah. It, this, is, this is not, this doesn't necessarily fall neatly along gendered lines, which also makes it very hard, especially in this case, because in our situation, Franklin had painted Eve as the person who had abused him. Mm. and used what's a, a, a type of gaslighting known as DARVO, which stands for Deny, Attack, Reverse Victim, and Offender. Unfortunately, we are seeing a lot of that in our political discourse. It's just in the air we breathe right now, which I find more than a little terrifying, but that's a whole other topic of conversation. Mm. But in this case, you know, because that narrative had existed kind of and had gotten around the world before we had managed to lace up our shoes, it, 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 for a lot of people, it created these really muddied waters. Right. You know, there are people who get away uh, with their abuses if they can come across as the victim. Uh, it delays people to really see what happened and see them for they are. And it triggers a lot of people who feel protective to jump in, want to kind of surround the person who's actually the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We see it all the time. Yeah, you do. Okay. Right. But it also makes me think about when I was working, my, my first um, field placement in graduate school, I was working at an LGBT uh, community center that offered mental health and offered free counseling to LGBT survivors of partner violence. And when we were going through the training, especially in the, the, the center I worked with, we had to always, whenever couples came in where there was an accusation of violence, we would always have to do a second screen because what would end up happening is one person would push and gaslight and nag and push buttons until their partner snapped and lashed out. And then when that lashing out happened, oh my goodness, I have to take you to counseling. You've been completely abusive to me and angry and this, this, and this. So like, we would always have to see like, who's the one who feels like they're walking on eggshells? Who's the one who is more aggressive? Who's the one who feels like they've done something terribly, terribly wrong? The first time when I interfaced face-to-face with Eve when she told me what was happening. Like, I just remember that 
fog and those feelings of just guilt and shame and just the the amount of blame for what happened that she took on mm -hmm. to me that was made it pretty clear that you know the violence that she was exhibiting was a reaction to abuse yeah yeah because those things are really really hard to fake in my experience yes and go going back to what you were saying about really being able to kind of see both sides and if someone has you know pushed someone to the point where they're behaving in a certain way and but that's not really how they would normally be in a relationship but someone is kind of um you know, poking them until they react or pulling their strings until they react. I think about that a lot. You know, I think about that also with situations around um, parental alienation. Yeah. Where, you know, the person who is losing the connection to their children mm -hmm. is going to freak out. Yeah. But because they're being ripped apart from their children um, mm -hmm. through no fault of their own. And so then the ex-partner or partner or the legal system can say see you know see look how irrational they're being how angry they're being that's right okay i i'm curious also when you were talking before at the beginning about um complex trauma mm -hmm. and working with people of complex trauma I, that is a term that i'm familiar with i don't know about all the listeners but i'm curious if you can define it and also what you see in this realm, what are some of the multi-layered pieces of trauma? So within the sex positive community, I mean, there are, you know, a lots of folks who are, um, well, especially folks who are, occupy multiple marginal identities who have dealt with, you know, child abuse and then were sexually assaulted later in life. Um, oh, what was his name? who had gone to the rehabilitation camp, but he also had to like, he had to like build his prison. Oh, in Scientology? Yeah. Yeah, Nathan Rich? Nathan Rich, like Nathan Rich is the poster child of complex trauma, mm. right? It was sort of these multiple, mm -hmm. both like individual and systemic things. And I think, um, especially in, in non-monogamy, if people have known this about themselves for a while and felt really shamed and stigmatized, right? That creates some trauma. There's a lot of intersections with people who identify as queer and trans and folks who occupy those identities, you know, experience that like death by a thousand paper cuts harassment. Um, there's a trans woman who I was working with who was talking about, and, and when I first started working with her, she was kind of early in her hormonal transition but as she started kind of quote, blending or, or looking more feminine and like her, you know, identified gender, she got more and more harassment and a lot more really violent harassment. And thinking about what it must be like to walk out of your house every day, wondering if somebody's going to threaten to kill you when you just were walking down the street, right? That's a form of trauma, you know? Yeah, no, I'm, I, I mean, I, I certainly am very sensitive to all of that. It's something that exists within within my family as well. And you know, you want to, you, you wish the the world would sort of catch up, <laughs> and be able to let people just be. I, I think also, uh, I'm, I'm reminding uh, 
myself as you're talking of an article that I read uh, about a a uh, professor oh trans male when um, he he was born female um, and became a college professor and uh, then started becoming the, the gender he was supposed to be um, and noticed right away that there was this switch in how he was treated as a man yep. that as, as a female, he said that the students would come up and come up with all these excuses about why they, you know, were late with their papers and their grandmother, this and their dog, that, and whatever else, and mm-hmm. plead, to, plead to her heart, you know, not listen, not take things seriously, talk while she was talking, mm-hmm. um, come late to class. Yeah. Uh, and then as soon as there was this male in front of the room in a suit and a tie, mm-hmm. uh, no more excuses. Mm-hmm. People came on time. Yep. And, and he was the exact same person. Exact same person. Yep. Uh, but there's this sort of acculturated and socialized uh, way of treating different genders. And so seeing that switch, I mean, he was very uncomfortable with yeah. just seeing how he, he was able to get more respect just because, you know, exactly not changing his behavior at all. Yeah. Um, and also there are kind of invisible identities and limital identities and kind of that intergenerational trauma. I have Holocaust survivors in my family and my mother, when she was younger, looked a lot like one of my grandmother's older siblings who died at Auschwitz. And people would like come up to my mother and then just burst into tears randomly. And I was like, you know, you know, mom, that was a type of trauma. Like these are things that we we kind of hold on to in our family. Right. And my mom, for my mom, that was just, but that's just life, Samantha. Right. Mm-hmm. Kind of the way that she copes with it is just like, this is what you have to do. This is how you survive kind of thing. Right. But to to have your appearance, right, be connected to this horror. To, to this this horrific time and scary time yeah that would affect people in different ways um it's interesting how she was able to kind of compartmentalize it and you know see it as that that's just the way it is yeah yeah and what's also interesting this is a bit of a, a, a sort of a related tangent going back to the work that we're doing one of the things that we've seen a lot um especially in poly communities and circles is you know when folks kind of read our initial letter that we had sent out kind of on medium it was like well it just sounds like he was a really crummy boyfriend right i mean was was that really abusive it's not like they you know it just sounds like he was bad at communicating and made some mistakes mm-hmm. and, and to me that just shows such a fundamental misunderstanding of how emotional abuse and gaslighting manifests. As far as I'm concerned, emotional abuse in a lot of ways is so much more harmful and more insidious than physical violence. For one thing, bones heal faster than psyches. And for another is when somebody hits you, you have evidence of that event. You have a bruise, you have a scar, you have something. Whereas with emotional violence and gaslighting, there's a part of you that doubts it even happened. 
the, the ways that our, our brain tries to protect us is like, no, it wasn't that bad. And, and it's very easy to minimize. Uh, I'm so glad you brought this up because yes, there are a lot of these invisible traumas mm-hmm. and they leave people feeling very, um, very much alone, not believed. Yeah. Uh, they kind of give up after a while having people yeah. or trying to convince people that something happened to them. And I remember one time working with a family um, whose daughter had gotten involved in a group. Was, it was a very bad place. Um, uh, it was an ashram. Not all ashrams are bad. But this one happened to be led by someone who was a very bad person. Uh, and she came out of it really traumatized. Um, looked presentable because she had learned how to look presentable uh, from her family of origin, but also being there because she was uh, someone who was a spokesperson for this ashram. So she learned how to, you know, hold it together. Mm -hmm. And her family just didn't seem, they seemed nice, but they didn't seem to have the sensitivity towards her that she was really needing. Um, And they just kept wanting her to be over it. Um, yeah, I think in part because they didn't know how to respond. And sometimes when people don't know how to respond to what you need, they just want you to not need it anymore. Yeah, it's, but, it's a, your discomfort is making me uncomfortable. So <laughs> you stop being sad so I can feel comfortable again. Exactly right, right. So I remember after a couple of sessions talking to them and just trying to kind of appeal to their conscience and whatever. And, and I said, okay, okay, I have it. This popped into my head and I said, look at your daughter right now and imagine that she is bleeding, that, that she is just, ble- you can see blood coming through her clothes. Mm-hmm. What would you do? What would you know? Would you know that she was hurt? Would mm-hmm. you know that you need to act with compassion? Would you know you need to respond quickly to what she's needing? Would you know she needs care? Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, of course. So I said, your daughter is bleeding. She Ooh, is. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And that sort of changed things. But there had to be the visual. You're right about the, the physical abuse. Yeah. There had to, they had to switch it so that they could see it. Yeah. And kind of, you know, I, I don't blame them for it because no. you, can't, you can't sort of prove it. And when someone says they were under manipulation or they were under mind control, what is that? like what does that mean yeah yeah what does that mean exactly and i think about so many of the trauma survivors who i work with like i i'm i'm perpetually in awe of so many of my clients who just fight so hard to get their agency and their brains back and so many of the people who i work with who have, have just gone through such horrific events in their lives most of them put on a fantastic face They are good at looking like they're completely perfect and together. And also a lot of ways that people will deal with trauma. And I also see this actually with my trans clients. Like when you're uncomfortable in your own skin, often you'll get involved in a job that is completely and totally immersive and commands all of your time. Mm. So you don't have time to think about the discomfort and the pain that you're in. There's a woman I had worked with some years ago who just horrible complex trauma it was molested by her stepfather had you know was married to somebody who was unfaithful after she had had a miscarriage just like one thing after another mm-hmm. and 
after one particularly bad trauma, the way that she dealt with it was she powered through nursing school in half the time, right? Wow, yeah. Um, And because that's just what you did. So there are a lot of folks who don't look like they're suffering because on the surface they're high achieving. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they're in any less pain than the trauma survivor who can't get out of bed. Right. And it sometimes means that they've delayed their healing. Yeah. And that it can come rushing back as soon as you have a free moment. Exactly. Totally occupied. Right. You know, the, the problem comes is that once you're out of the trauma or with my trans clients who have started going through hormonal transition and are now feeling confident in their bodies, and now they want free time and now they're stuck in a job. Yeah. I, I think also when you're, when you're working with a lot of different populations who have different wiring and different yeah. activities, I think what is really important is for people to see how people are more alike than unalike, right? To quote Maya Angela, that there is this, this sense of finding what they have in common, that piece that, mm-hmm. that, that the rest of, I think, society might not notice because society notices sort of the obvious. Yeah. Um, like the physical scars or the changes or the clothing or the hair or whatever else. But, but seeing that, that human beings are human beings and that we have a certain way that we um, react to being treated as less than mm-hmm. and not being taken seriously and not feeling protected mm-hmm. in terms of being able to sort of know what to watch out for. I'm sure you come across this a lot that people will share with you mm-hmm. what they started noticing that was making them feel kind of uncomfortable. And yeah. within the communities that you work with, what are some red flags? What are some things that people should watch out for? So one of the biggest red flags are people who um, claim to be gurus. Especially in the kink BDSM world, there is this kind of idea of people having this like one true way. Like, this is the way that you do it. I have all of the answers. Everybody else is wrong. When I hear that, that is one of those things that sets my teeth on edge. Or like, well, if you were really poly, if you were really non-monogamous, you'd be okay with this. Or if you were real dominant, if you were real submissive, you'd let me do this. That's kind of a major red flag. Also, if people kind of isolate you and try to kind of cordon you off, people who are very experienced who will then seek out people who are new to the community and then pull them away from social supports, Hmm. that is also a very big red flag. Mm -hmm. So those are the ones that I've noticed. I'm sure there are more that I will remember the second we hang up. (laughs) Right. But you're also mentioning things that I see with cultic groups and with, you know, unhealthy relationships. And so, yeah, the red flags are um, sometimes the same across the board, even if they come in a different context, which is, I think, why, why I have different people on this podcast who are coming at this idea of indoctrination from different places, because see the common thread yeah uh, that it doesn't just happen in that organization or in whatever it is that it can really happen anywhere and it's important to know what to watch out for and how to keep yourself safe 
if there's one thing that I've learned just in my work and all of the different environments that I've worked in when it comes to violence and abuse, like if you think it can't happen here to you, think again. Mm -hmm. If you think you're immune to this, mm -hmm. you know, that's a false sense of security. Right. Yeah. Which makes you more vulnerable. Right. I mean, I teach people how to spot these things for a living and I'm vulnerable, but because I know that I know what to look for when I see myself slipping into something that may not be healthy for me. Yeah. And it's, it can be frustrating when it's something that you talk about. I have the same experience when it's something that I seem to be a quote unquote expert on and it, uh, I didn't catch it right away, you know, in my own life, but you know, we're all human. And, uh, and sometimes when it happens to us, we don't have the distance exactly. to be able to see it right away. Okay. Well, Anything else that you want to share before we finish up? I mean, I think those are the big things. Um, one of the things that we are, uh, that our pod has put together is we have a little um, crowdfunding PayPal pool because there are a lot of really talented and awesome people who are doing a lot of work and a lot of it is unpaid. So we have like a little crowdfunding thing to help us fund things like, well, you know, hiring outside experts, you know, initially I had reached out to you for, you know, consultation because, you know, there's some work that some of us can't just can't do unpaid. So if people could donate, we're not tax deductible, but I promise we're worth it. So um, I can, I can send you the link to that if people would like to throw a few dollars our way. Um, that would make absolutely the world, that would mean the world to me and all of the amazing and talented people who are, are joining me in this work. Well, not joining me, who I'm joined with in this work. It's I'm not I'm not the leader by any stretch. Yeah, but it's wonderful. And and so thank you for your time today, and also for the work that you're doing. And thank you. And and likewise, I I've been such a huge fan of your podcast and your work. And this has been transformational and helpful for a number of my clients and the people I work with. So oh, likewise. I'm very happy to hear yeah. that. Thank you for letting me know. Really? Yeah, the um, I've been sharing your uh, narcissistic abuse episode to a number of my clients who have found it really important. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. Good to speak with you. I hope we get to do it again sometime soon. Likewise. One more thing before you go. There is something uniquely powerful about someone not following by their own ideals and by their own standards when they literally wrote the book on it. Truth is, to varying degrees, we are all capable of talking the talk, but not walking the walk. Every once in a while, actually, there is an older woman I see walking down my street at dusk. She has a plastic bag that she holds that has what look like her work clothes in them and a purse on the other shoulder, and she often looks tired. I see her sometimes as I come home from work, and it's about a mile from my house to where you catch the bus, and I saw her one time sitting on the grass in front of my house as I live on a corner, and some people stop there to take a rest while they're exercising and running up the hills behind my house or just walking their dogs and sitting for a moment. So I asked her while I saw her sitting if she was okay, and she said that she walks down from the house she works at where she cares for a family's children. It's up in the hills. And then it takes her another 20 minutes just to get from my house down to the boulevard where the buses run. 
So if I see her and I'm on my way home, I make a U-turn and pick her up and give her a ride to the boulevard. I've done it a number of times without asking any questions, and finally I asked if she had ever told the people she worked for that it was hard for her to walk about 40 minutes at the end of the day to the bus to take her home. And her English was not so perfect, but her response was that they knew. And during one of our other rides, she said, it was funny to her to now see her boss on the signs. I asked her what she meant by the signs. So as we drove closer to the boulevard, she said, I show you. She pointed at a sign with a picture of a well-dressed man and his name. And it turns out the man she works for is trying to get elected to be a city council member. And I thought, how interesting that he wants to serve his city and take care of those who live around him, or at least be known as a person who cares for those who live around him. But neither he nor anyone else in his family are fully taking care of the person who helps take care of his family. So that's a smaller version of what I see as a bigger issue that Samantha mentioned. The kind of do as I say, but not as I do on a larger scale. It's the idea of institutional betrayal. There was a paper written by Carly Smith and Jennifer Freight about institutional betrayal and about how an institution that you might be dependent on in one way or another perpetrates wrongdoings against you or fails to prevent or respond supportively towards you when something bad happens to you. It reminds me of Brie Lascota's interview last week where she was speaking on the podcast about having a stalker who's still around. And that when she first went to the police as a young woman to say that he had been scaring her and she was very frightened of him, they told her she should feel lucky to be getting this kind of attention from a man. And I think about the men who go to get help when they're being abused or mistreated by others, including male or female partners. And they are insulted, actually, by the system that is supposed to protect them, where they often have to deal with being judged that somehow they aren't strong enough to handle this on their own or protect themselves. Institutional betrayal is something that applies to situations after you are assaulted and the institutions do not protect you either beforehand to help prevent it from happening, nor do anything to support you and make changes after it happens. So this can happen at a treatment center, a residential treatment center, uh, the Greek system on campus for hazing and assault, the abuses and sexual assaults in the military, people seeking asylum, schools that don't protect those with differences and keep those students safe, and certain religions and cults and the foster care system and prisons and on and on. And from their studies, the people who were harmed and abused, assaulted, neglected, or betrayed in institutions seem to have deeper and more long-lasting trauma following what happened to them than people who were raised in homes where there was abuse or neglect. I found that very interesting. And there's a questionnaire they put together where they asked people to answer some questions like, did the institution that you were involved with 
take proactive steps to prevent the experience that you had? Did they create an environment instead where this type of experience is common or considered kind of no big deal? Did they create an environment where this experience seems more likely to occur and then they make it difficult to report the experience without you being harmed or being given a hard time? And did they respond inadequately or not at all after you reported what happened and did they cover it up? Did they punish you in some way for this experience happening or you had a loss in privilege or status there? And did they respond differently to you because of your gender or gender identity or sexual orientation? Did they respond differently to you based on your race? And did they tell you to keep it quiet or else? And in this questionnaire, they went further by asking basically the kinds of questions you ask to see if the institution actually cares and to see if they're going to help you in your healing. Like, did they apologize for what happened to you? Did they believe that what you reported was true? Did they ensure that you were still treated with the same status or respect afterwards? And did they meet your needs for support and maybe different accommodations to keep you safe? And did they create an environment where this type of experience was safe to discuss? Did they create an environment where this type of experience was recognized as a problem? All of those last questions are very interesting because when you see how easy it is to take care of the people after they need you, after they've been harmed, you wonder why the institutions that they're a part of or relying on or dependent on make it seem so impossible for people to feel protected. As soon as the people running any of those organizations care more about the individuals there than they care about maintaining the reputation of the organization in the public eye, maintaining their standing in the community as the head of these organizations and getting whatever attention they need or kudos for it, or feeling driven to cover everything up to make sure that they get private funding and continue to get private funding or government contracts, then it is actually quite easy to take care of the people there and prevent the traumatizing and isolating after effects of institutional betrayal if only ego didn't get in the way. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page, or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. Rachel.